children for kingdom kids yes yeah that's right good good morning good morning okay uh allow me to pray as we uh, continue on the service this morning god we uh we thank you for this time that we can um we can meet together that we can dig in your word that we can uh God, that we can commune wherever we are. God, we pray in this time that you would, you would speak to us. You would transform our minds and our hearts through your word. Um, God, and we would, uh, that we'd be drawn closer to you. God, and we would be inspired to take those, whatever the next step is, to um, be drawn closer to you to continue uh, in this journey of discipleship. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Let me offer my welcome as well. I am pleased to be able to speak this morning when, uh, when Pastor Mark asked if I would be willing to preach on January the 2nd. I was uh, uh, quite pleased. There's a number of things that come together. And so I, it was my, my joy to be able to, uh, uh, to preach for him today. Um, one of the things that excited me so much about today is that today is Epiphany Week. This is Epiphany Sunday. And in the Baptist Church, we don't always call attention to Epiphany. It's, it's not a normal thing for us. And, but uh, it's a really important day in the life of the church. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we are probably familiar with it because we... Um, we know that song, the 12 days of Christmas, and the 12 days of Christmas actually mark the time from Christmas to Epiphany. The 12 days start with Christmas and end in Epiphany, and Epiphany Sunday, and it's that first Sunday before the Feast of the Epiphany, which is the manifestation, the revelation, the revealing of the Son historically to the Magi and things, but... Epiphany comes from the Greek epiphaneo, and it means the unveiling. 
It means the revealing, the making known of something that was hidden. And it names in the life of the church the period between Christmas and Ash Wednesday when we move into Lent. And it's a time for the church to pay particular attention to things being revealed, to things being made known. Uh, It is an opportunity for us to unveil things. Of course, that implies then that something has been veiled that we no longer see. And this is, this is kind of the invitation of Epiphany for this next season of the year. It's an opportunity to ask God to open our eyes as a community, to open our eyes as individuals, to open our eyes as the church, to be able to see things that we have not seen clearly recently. Perhaps because of Overfamiliarity, perhaps it's because of inattention, but for whatever reason, it's an invitation for the Spirit to open our eyes to see. So our sermon today is Epiphany, what do we need to see? The second thing that was exciting to me about this is I looked at the lectionary reading today, and some of you know when I preach, I often preach from the lectionary. The lectionary reading came from Ephesians. Talk a little bit more about that, but Ephesians is one of my one of my favorite books. So I want to read the passage. It's Ephesians chapter three, verses one through twelve. And I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for, Jesus, for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, Sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ. And to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance 
with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your apostle Paul who delivered this word to us. And we pray that your spirit would unpack this for us that you would help us to see things that you want us to see, that we may be the people that you called us to be for a world that so desperately needs us to be them. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Amen. I said one of the things that I, I was so pleased about this being in Ephesians is because I, I love the book of Ephesians. Now, there are several reasons why I like Ephesians. One is that Ephesians was a circular letter. I mean, we have ancient manuscripts. You may or may not know that we, the, the, the Bible is a translation. Our book of Ephesians is a translation of manuscripts that circulated in the ancient world. And we have these manuscripts, and the book of Ephesians will have the entire letter, but the city that it's to is left out. And we call these circular because what Paul would do is he would write these letters not to a particular church like the letter to the Corinthians, which was to a particular congregation, particular people in Corinth. These were letters that he sent to a wide variety of churches, and it was kind of fill in the blank. Colossians and Ephesians are both circular letters that would go to the Ephesian to, to churches in that area where they would receive this letter from Paul and the place would be empty and they would know they were just to fill in the blank. Now, a couple of things are really interesting for me about that is that uh, Paul probably had never visited these churches. These churches had heard Paul, and you see evidence of that even in the passage that we read they know who he was, but these are churches that he, he may have known a few people in, but he had never been there. He had never, he had never um, ministered to them. He had never been in their midst. They were somewhat familiar with Paul. They were Ephesians. It was not specifically to a particular congregation. It was these churches of Gentiles. And one of the things I love about that is that that's kind of us. Out of all of the letters in the New Testament, these circular letters that were written to Gentiles without a particular congregation in mind, we could fill in our name here. And there's one other thing that so excites me about the book of Ephesians is that Ephesians is also not so the circular letter is what we call one of the prison epistles. Now, when we think about prison epistles, we know Paul's journey, and we know that he went to prison a couple of times, and he was there, and he always got out, or, or he, he gets out and he continues on. But something that is so significant about the prison epistles is that when Paul was in prison here writing this letter, he did not know whether he was going to get out. And if you know anything about Roman prisons, 
you knew that if you got in, you didn't know whether you were going to get out. For all of Rome's uh, pride around Roman law and Roman justice, their prisons were brutal places that was very much unknown, ambiguous as to whether or not you were going to get out if you ever found yourself And the reason that's significant is, put this together. Paul is going to write this letter to a group of churches that he doesn't know, that he has some familiarity with, perhaps some of his disciples or some people that he had discipled started these churches. He has something to say to them, and he doesn't know whether he's going to get to follow this up with anything else. And this is what I love about Ephesians. If you want to get to the heart of Paul, if you want to know what Paul wanted to say to Gentiles about the gospel and about Jesus, read Ephesians. Ephesians is the very heart of Paul's message. If he could only say one thing to them, If he only got one shot, what would he say in Ephesians is that saying? It's like his last will and testament. Now, Ephesians, because of that, it is packed. And we could spend lots and lots of time. We could could spend a year just on Ephesians. Spend a day on Ephesians. People spend their whole lives studying Ephesians. There is so much stuff here. We're not going to have time to do anything but just touch the, the kind of the, the heart of it. And there are many other could, <clears throat> but many scholars see the book of Ephesians driven by three impulses. Interestingly enough, they're the verse of three chapters. So here's what I want, us, I want us to do. We want to, to, to start. This is this gospel that Paul wants these Gentile churches to understand. This was his message to them. And the first one is in chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says, With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And this is the heart of it. This is it. This was the secret. This was the mystery. That in the fullness of time, Christ would gather all, God would gather all things in him. Things in heaven and things under the earth. Now the NRSV translates that as mystery. And it's, it, it, mystery has a different connotation to us. It, actually better translated a secret. It's a secret. It's something that wasn't known. It's not mysterious, like the incarnation. It's a secret. Nobody heard this. Nobody got this. And it was revealed to Paul this secret that God had always planned from the very beginning To bring all things together in Christ. 
See, the Jews recognized that things were fragmented, things were falling apart, things were disheveled, they were out of sorts, and they needed to have things put back right. We know that this happened very, very early. And Israel, Abraham was called to be the family through which God put these things back in order. But that didn't go out so well. But through Abraham's family, through the seed of Abraham, God did set this right. God set right in Jesus. He set things right by showing grace and mercy to the Gentiles while they were enemies and strangers, though they were dead to any concerns about God. God lavished his great love on the Gentiles, showing the immeasurable richness of his grace. Bringing together in Christ the Jew and the Gentile. The second impulse is driven by chapter 2, verse 10. Recognizing that God has brought the Jew and the Gentile together in Jesus Christ. He says, for we are what he has made us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And what Paul is that that Jew and Gentile brought together is... God's handiwork. And that's actually the, the, the language, the better translation here again. For we are what he has made us. Some translations I, I like better here that we are God's handiwork. We are God's knitting together. We are God's. T- now, very often when we hear the word we in these passages, we think me. Or maybe sometimes we think we. As a congregation. I think what Paul is talking about here is we, as in Jew and Gentile, have been woven together. And it's that tapestry of we being woven together into one which God prepared beforehand. Good works. For God before, prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Our way of life is to be knit together as one. Again, this is the, this is the driving theological impulse through chapter 1, into chapter 2, and then in today's passage in chapter 3. What are these good works? What is this way of life? What is this? Chapter 3, verse 10 in the heart of our passage that we read today, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its variety might make known, might now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now think about this. Through the church, through this weaving together of Jew and Gentile, known his wisdom manifold wisdom, his wisdom with all of its great variety, God makes known his wisdom to 
the rulers and authorities. I think what Paul is wanting us to focus on here, again, often when we hear this language, when we think about our witness, when we think about our testimony, we think of our testimonies as individuals. Paul wants the Gentiles to know that the weaving together of Jew and Gentile as church is a testimony to the rulers and authorities. We are a new humanity that bears witness to God's Wisdom that God has made one people out of Jew and Greek, out of Jew and Gentiles, that the Gentiles have been woven into this setting things right and now are co heirs, co members, sharers in the promises of God. Now, again, because we don't live in that culture, because we're not as familiar with the ways of life that separated Jew and Gentile, I think we often lose some of the import of this. But think back to all of the laws that we have in the Old Testament about how the Jews were to treat outsiders and Gentiles. There were eating laws. There were were all kinds of ways in which they were to protect themselves from the Gentile, from the contamination of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, likewise, they despised the Jews. They wanted nothing to do with the Jews. The Jews were outcasts and outsiders to bring Jew and Gentile together was nothing short of a miracle. People this different living together as co-heirs, sharers in the same promise, as co-members of one body, was simply unheard of. It could not be ignored. And it is that living together as co-members, one body, shared promises that makes known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places the wisdom of God. The rulers and authorities. This also we don't often think about rulers and authorities so much in our witness, that our witness is a witness to rulers and authorities. Three times in Ephesians, Paul calls attention to rulers. In chapter 1, he calls attention to it in verse 21. The rulers and authorities that Christ has been set over the rulers and the authorities. Here in this passage, then in chapter 6, He calls attention to the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. What are these rulers and authorities? Quite simply, and again, we can't develop all this. We don't have time. But it's the rulers and authorities that give the structures to lives. 
They're the ones who tell us how to live, what rules we should follow, how we should, how we should engage one another. And it's the rules and the authorities that have told the Jews, live this way, and the Gentiles live that way. It's the system and the structures that create our lives that give a sense of order to our life. And the gospel is disrupting that, saying that these rules and authorities that guide our lives are now brought together in a new rule and a new authority. See, church as dramatically challenging the social political life of the world it has formed us. Paul sees the church as dramatically challenging the structures of our lives which give them order and meaning and peace or so-called peace. Because God is forming a people around a new way of being in the world, a new humanity, a new set of rules and guidelines and structures. It's why the Christmas story is laden with such political, social language. The government will be upon his shoulder. He is the peace. His kingdom, his rule, his reign in our lives will have no end. See, Paul, for Paul, this wasn't something way off into the future. This was in the here and now. The structure of our lives is going to be profoundly different because God is weaving together Jew and Gentile into a new humanity. Ephesians makes a big deal about this new humanity that we are woven into. But Paul continues this theme in other places because the disruption isn't simply the way Jews and Gentiles treat each other. You're probably familiar with Galatians 3, 28 and 29, where Paul is along this same theme talking to the Galatians saying there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free. There is no longer male nor female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. The structures that have given meaning and place to Jew and Greek, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, have been destroyed. Those barriers have been broken down, and now we are new. Jew and Greek, free and slave, male and female, rich and poor. We recognize these divisions all over. Educated and uneducated. All of these structures that govern our lives together. What Paul is trying to help us see is that church, being in Christ, should be our most basic social, political, familial designation and govern the way we act towards each other. The church as the body is God's tapestry 
which displays God's wisdom to a world that so desperately needs to see it. See, the world deals with the diversity and the difference and the the structures quite differently than we do. The unity that we are called to is a unity of love, a unity of a unity of that that witnesses to the powers that their day is over. The days of dealing with difference, the way of dealing with gender, wealth, of social economic power is different now because God's kingdom has come and the church gets to live in the midst of it. But what does that look like? What does that living actually look like? How do we display that love, that unity, that singleness of purpose, that being in Christ? Well, that takes us to chapter 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians because this is what he lays out for us there. But I just want to call our attention to, to the beginning of chapter 4. This is how chapter 4 begins as he leads us into this way of being church that is a testimony against the principalities and powers. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, that calling is all this background. This is what you have been called to. Live a life worthy of this calling. With all humility and gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body, one spirit. Just as you were called into one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. What is this way of life worthy of our calling? It is a life of humility, of gentleness, of patience, of bearing with one another in love, of doing, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We tend to think of humility as kind of this internal disposition of not thinking about yourself. But none of these are merely attitudes or dispositions, every one of these name ways of engaging people with whom we are different. Humility, in my mind, when I think about humility, goes back to Philippians 2. Humility isn't an attitude about myself, it's an action towards someone else. It's looking after the other person's interest and not simply my own. Gentleness is a way of responding to something that upsets me. 
Gentleness is something, is, is a way of responding to things that make me angry. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. You would never have to bear with someone you weren't in an argument with. You wouldn't have to bear with someone that you didn't have disagreements with. Paul recognizes that in the church, there's going to be all kinds of disagreements. There are going to be difference of opinions. There's going to be different theories. There's going to be different understandings of social political issues. There are going to be all kinds of differences. Paul's well aware of that. One of the things I often chuckle with is people say, man, I just wish we could go back to the New Testament church. I kind of wonder, the church was a church of peace, of no disagreements. Read the New Testament. Read the correspondence to the Corinthians. There was massive disagreement in the Gentile churches. That's the norm. What's not normal is how do we respond to those? Because there's a way of responding that is more through the principalities and powers than through in Christ. And Paul calls us to respond the in Christ way with humility and gentleness and patience. We're going to celebrate communion in a minute. And communion itself, the only reason we have the communion discourse in Corinth is because there was a massive battle between rich and poor going on in Corinth. Communion comes out of the context of the rich being able to come to the place where they were going to have the great meal and getting there first And the poor who had to work or who were slaves or who didn't have control of their own time had to come when they could. And by the time they got there, there was nothing left. Social, political, economic disruption. And Paul says, it should not be. We have communion as a celebration of the unity as Paul's way of resolving part of the conflict in the church at Corinth. You know, we can think about a lot of the debates that, that, that we are in, that we have been in for the last 20, 30, 40 years, the theological debates about creation, evolution, the political debates, of all kinds of political debates. Currently, we're in the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers, and whether we should mask or not, but we got all kinds of debates. Debate new and I would suggest that, that if we think they're the big deal, nothing was as significant in the life of the early church. It's something we often just kind of read over, which is that offering meat offered to idols. We think of a trivial thing, but that was so deeply embedded in worldviews and the way they saw the world. Read what Paul does there. It's amazing how Paul calls them together in humility and patience and gentleness, bearing with, one, bearing with one another, maintaining the unity. See, our struggle isn't with flesh and blood. 
Yeah, my disagreement is with you, but my struggle is with the power that tells me how to respond to that disagreement. Our struggle is with the systems that have taught us to respond to each other than what Jesus called us to. The way Paul tells us here in Ephesians chapter 2. The church has never been in a place where everyone at the same time fought the same thing, understood things the same. The church has never been a place of this unity that sometimes we think back and we sentimentally wish it was like that. It has never been that way. But rather it's a place where people follow Jesus. And following Jesus helps us recognize that in our conflicts, in our disagreements, in our different ways of doing things, be they big or small, there is an opportunity here. An opportunity to show humility and gentleness and patience and kindness, bearing with one another in love, maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, making known God's manifold wisdom in pulling us together as his church. It's risky. It's vulnerable. It's costly. It's the way of Jesus. Which is why he said it's, it's taking up the cross and following him. At Christmas, we celebrate the one who came and brought this new reality into existence. Who set things right by his coming and finished it on the cross with his dying. As followers of Jesus, we are committed We have committed ourselves to this path, to this way of life. At Epiphany, we invite God to show us what we need to see. So what have you seen? And how will you respond? Gracious God, we just ask that you would speak, whether today or the rest of this week, you would bring to memory what you want us to hear so that we might see better what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For a world that so desperately needs us to be those witnesses. Amen.